Yeah, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Hey, good morning, everybody. So this is week two that we've been talking about this thing called spiritual warfare. And uh, last week we noted, we said, hey, the struggles that we have every day, the reason our life is so hard from time to time, you know, we think it's people. We think it's flesh and we think it's blood. But uh, actually, uh, Paul reminded us last week that, uh, you know, we're living our lives on a spiritual battlefield. And that the backdrop of our lives, you know, the backdrop of our marriages are not happening on romantic balconies. They're happening on, on a spiritual battlefield. And so we need, to, we need to keep that in view and we need to keep that in mind uh, that this is where the real battle of life takes place. Um, and so we're told here today that if we want to, um, you know, stand strong, we have to put on the full armor of God. Now, we also said last week that um, our, the battle occurs in the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. Now, when we think of heavenly realms, I just want you to think about the spiritual realm. So the heavenly realm equals the spiritual realm. And so I want to make a case for why this battle, even though we can't see it or we can't hear it, why it uh, strikes at the very core of who we are. So remember, the battle is taking place, is taking place in the heavenly places or the spiritual realm. Remember that he's already told us here in the book of Ephesians that Jesus is sitting in the heavenly realm, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that God has sent his angels or ministering spirits, according to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, to minister to you in the heavenly places. And so though that battle may seem far away, it may seem removed, it may seem silenced, it is actually very, very up close and personal, striking at the very heart of who, uh, who you are and where you're seated. And so he's reminding us, at least last week, that there is an ongoing spiritual battle for the souls of men. And that the reason your life and my life seems often so difficult, so hard, so trying, so overwhelming is because of this unseen battle. Now, let me give you an illustration for this. So uh, we're coming up on football season, whether it be high school football, college football, pro football. And we're used to thinking when we think about something like football, well, there are two teams on the field. There's us, right? And then there's them. But the reality is in any, in any football game, there are more than two teams on the field. One of those teams is meant to be kind of invisible, kind of unseen, but that's the team that's actually calling the shots. And we call that the referee team, right? And what's so interesting about referees is they don't care what the players think. They don't care what the players want. Their job is to represent a higher power and a higher authority and do that with truth and justice. Now, in the, and so I think that's a great illustration of, you know, hey, we see flesh and blood on the field, but there's another team, and that is the team that's actually calling the shots, and those are the teams that actually report to a higher authority as well. Now, last week, we were also reminded that when it comes to the spiritual forces of darkness, that the devil 
Satan is the commander-in-chief of the forces of darkness. And he also told us that as the commander-in-chief, Satan has a strategy. He has deceitful schemes to bring against the people of God. We were also reminded last week that under him is a highly organized system, a vast layered army that consists of the equivalent of generals, of colonels, of lieutenants, and so forth. Now, in the next few moments, I'm going to tell you something that devils and demons don't want you to know. They don't want you to know that you can forfeit God's protective covering in the middle of the battle. It's possible for a believer, a follower of Jesus, to forfeit the protective covering of God in the heat of the battle. So Paul says this, he says, I want you to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes. Now, a couple of observations. I want to talk about what the day of evil is. So the day of evil is the day you want to give up. It's the day when you are completely overwhelmed. The day of evil is literally when all hell breaks loose. It's the day when you feel like you're about to lose your mind. It's the day when nothing is going right. And of course, as with any day, days can turn into weeks and weeks can turn into months. And then you're in not just a day of evil, but a season of evil as well. And here's the gut wrencher. The day of evil comes for everybody. It comes for all of us. And we all have to face that day, we all have to face that season when life is just really, really hard. And what Paul is making clear here is he's saying, look, when the day of evil comes, you don't want to face that day without God's protective covering. That's what the armor of God represents here. It represents God's protective covering for you and for me in the heat of the battle. Now, The last couple of weeks have represented that day for me. And I just want to walk you through that. I want to be careful because I don't want you to feel like I'm using the pulpit to complain or for the pulpit to elevate my problems. What I'm trying to do is just illustrate that the day of evil does come for everybody, including pastors. Now, you know that a few weeks ago, many of you do, my wife Jackie broke her arm and that my daughter Jamie had a surgery that was scheduled while I was simultaneously trying to get to Huntington, West Virginia to overcome some hurdles and some setbacks associated with my father's estate who had recently passed away. And so last Tuesday, my daughter Jamie went into surgery at 4.30 in the afternoon for a surgery that was scheduled to last three to four hours 
That surgery actually required three different surgeons and six and a half hours going well past midnight. So what was supposed to be originally an outpatient surgery became overnight with Jamie being released late in the day on Wednesday. Now, of course, since my wife has a broken arm, she can't drive to any of those locations. So I'm, I'm the taxi service for our family during these days. Now, the other thing I didn't mention that's all also been going on for the last several months is that our dog of 18 years has been going downhill and having seizures. And you need to know that when he has a seizure, he barks and he loses control of his bowels and his bladder. So I leave Jamie at the hospital on Tuesday night to come home in time to pick up prescriptions at the pharmacy before it closes. I arrive here in Shelbyville to discover that the pharmacy can't release the prescriptions for my daughter who was in surgery because they were written by an intern. And the reason her prescriptions were written by an intern is all the doctors were in the room with my daughter on a surgical table. So I go home empty-handed, um, only to discover that our dog, Ty, is having yet another seizure. So in the middle of his seizure, the pharmacy calls me back to tell me the prescriptions went through with five minutes to spare before they close. So I leave my dog in the middle of his surgery uh, or of his seizure, and go to retrieve my daughter's prescriptions only because the pharmacist, bless her heart, uh, agreed to wait until I got there before she left for the night. Now, I'm just telling you this, friends, because it's just a great illustration of what the day of evil looks like. And friends, hear me out. It makes all the difference when you endure those days trusting in God's love for you and his goodness, his character, his grace, his mercy. It makes all the difference when you endure the day of evil knowing that your heavenly father is with you and for you in those moments. Knowing that you have done everything possible to be faithful to God. And the good news, at least according to Paul, I mean, the bad news is, right, the day of evil's coming and it's coming for you. But the good news is that on that day, when that happens, we only have one job. We only have to do one thing, stand. Notice how many uh, times that word is used, how many synonyms, like stand, stand again, stand firm. Right? We don't, that means we don't have to run away. We don't have to be overcome. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to coerce. We don't have to resign. We don't have to do anything. We just have to stand firm knowing that we have God's protective covering. Now, listen, I know some of you are here this morning and you're here with littles. And if some of you are here with littles and those littles are especially sensitive you might want to take this moment just to kind of walk out of the room, maybe go get a drink of water, go look at something pretty outside, because I'm going to show a movie clip, and in this movie clip, it's going to be pretty tense for a few moments. Now, while it ends well, it does 
create a tense moment that your sensitive littles might, uh, you know, it, to be frank, it just might scare some of your little. So if, you're, if that's something you're concerned about, I want you to be aware of that. So this is a clip that I believe perfectly illustrates uh, spiritual warfare. Remember that uh, Peter tells us this. He says, I want you to remember that your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we're told in light of that, we need to be sober. We need to be self-controlled. We need to be alert, right? And so this is uh, from a movie that came out years and years ago called The Bear. There are no words in this clip, but, uh, but it's a powerful clip nonetheless. And so I want you to watch as you consider our adversary, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion. Uh, check out your screen.
You know, one of the things that Scripture says about our Heavenly Father is He's called the God of all comfort. Isn't that a beautiful scene at the end when that little guy runs into the arms of his papa and finds comfort? That's exactly what our Heavenly Father does for us when we find ourselves in the heat of the battle. And it's so important to realize that we're only called to stand, friends, because our Heavenly Father has our back. Our Heavenly Father is with us and for us. His eyes are fixed on us. His affections are for us. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So he says, I want you to stand firm. And I want you to do that with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, Paul was writing this letter from prison in Rome. Most scholars believe that he was actually chained to a rotation of guards. So when Paul begins to talk about the Roman armor, he is actually studying the armor of the soldier that he is chained to. And so first he takes note of the soldier's belt, and he calls this belt the belt of truth. Now it's important to understand that the belt of a Roman soldier held up and kept in place almost every other piece of armor that he wore. The belt was what kept that armor attached and moving with that soldier in a time of battle. Now, uh, the belt here could represent a couple of things. I'm going to walk through either one because I'm not completely sure myself and scholars are kind of divided about it. But I'll let you pick the interpretation you like best. So first, it's possible that the belt of truth is just a reference to Jesus himself as being our belt. And in fact, it was Jesus himself who said, right, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So we know that the truth isn't just a principle. The truth is a person. The truth is Jesus. Or It could also be true that the belt of truth here represents the character or the integrity or the truthfulness or the wholeness of the character of a follower of Jesus. So in other words, here in this context, it would represent a clear conscience, a man or a woman who consistently does their best and lives the truth and tells the truth. And if that's the case, then Paul is warning us here that when we forfeit our integrity, we forfeit God's protection. God can't always have our backs in those moments. So he's saying, look, if you forfeit your personal integrity, you go into the spiritual enemy, spiritual battle with your enemy, vulnerable to attack. And that's not all. He says, I want you to stand firm with the belt of truth, but I also want you to stand firm with what he called the breastplate of righteousness. He says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. It's very important to understand this. This is the righteousness of Christ that he has given to you. This is not your righteousness. This is not something you have to muster. Remember, this is God's armor, not yours. It is the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of Christ alone that helps you endure the accusations of the enemy. 
Remember, John told us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That means he accuses you, he demeans you, he ridicules you, he shames you. In fact, he will try to use shame to create a barrier between you and God. He will try to make you so ashamed that you won't go to God because your shame won't let you. That's how crafty and wily our enemy is. So if you don't know that, uh, that part of the gospel is an exchange of righteousness, in other words, Christ took your unrighteousness upon himself and he endured God's wrath for that so that he could, in exchange, give you his righteousness. So that when God looks at you, when God looks at me, he only sees the righteousness of his son. And this is so important because if you're standing in the righteousness of Christ, then the devil can't shame you. Hey, it doesn't matter, devil. It's not my righteousness anyway. I, I have the righteousness of Christ. See, you can't shame me, you can't demean me, you can't ridicule me. Because if you don't know that you possess Christ's righteousness, you will fold, you will not bear up under the weight of those accusations. The breastplate of righteousness. And then he says, I want you to stand also with feet adorned with the gospel of peace. Here's how he says it. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, one of the things he tells us here is that the gospel brings with it peace. And it brings three kinds of peace. When I say the gospel, I just mean the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. That's the gospel. And he says, look, that brings three kinds of peace. That brings peace with God. You used to be God's enemies, but because of what Jesus did, now you're at peace with God. It brings peace with God. It brings peace with others. Paul told us earlier in the book of Ephesians that part of the gospel means that the dividing wall of hostility between ethnic groups, between people, has been broken down so that we can have peace with one another, regardless of our culture, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our differences in personality. We can have peace with one another. And then the third thing, the, the kind of peace that the gospel promises to bring is just a peace within just a peace within, regardless of the circumstances. So he says, look, I want you to stand in the peace that God has given you. You can stand knowing that God has your back, that his eyes are fixed on you, that his affections are for you. Furthermore, you can stand knowing that you're at peace with your brothers and sisters. There is no dividing wall of hostility. When you stand, you stand united together against the enemy. And then finally, you can stand in the peace that God brings within because his burden is light and his yoke, the yoke of Jesus, is easy. And so uh, think about this way. You know, when a lion, right, wants to attack uh, 
its prey or a member of a herd, what does that lion try to do? It tries to separate its prey from the rest of the herd. This is one of the tactics that our enemy uses. He tries to create division. He tries to create disunity to get people off on their own. See, here's the bad news about our enemy. The devil goes to church, friends. The devil goes to church. And he goes to church to create disunity, division, yeah, and to accuse. So he says, look, I want you to stand with the belt of truth. I want you to stand with the breastplate of righteousness. I want you to stand with feet adorned by the gospel of peace. But I also want you to stand with the shield of faith. The shield of faith, here's how he says it. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now in this context, faith, faith is the ability to trust God in the heat of the battle. Because one of the ways Satan tries to, one of his schemes, one of his strategies that he tries to bring to bear on his people is he will try to convince you when, when hard times roll in that God doesn't love you, that God doesn't care about you, that you probably deserve everything that you're going for, and that because you're in pain, God is not at stand and watch, that God is just not there for you, that God is letting you down. This is a big, big deal. So in this case, he's not saying, well, it's important to believe in God. That's not what faith means in this context. It's not, faith is not just, well, hey, I believe God exists. No, it's believing in God's love for you. It's believing that God's eyes are fixed on you. It's believing in God's goodness and his grace and his mercy. Faith is singing a song about the goodness of God when you're you're facing the day of evil. That's the kind of faith that Paul is referencing here and talking about here. It's not believing in God. It's just believing God. Believing God when he says that he is good. Believing God when he says that he's gracious. Believing God when he says that he's merciful. It's just believing God. He says the shield of faith is what allows us to extinguish all those accusations that Satan would bring to bear, not just against us, but against our heavenly Father as well. And then he says, I want you to stand not just with the shield of faith, but with the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation. Now, sometimes when you have a passage that I feel like I'm a little hot, can we back me down just a little? Do you guys feel like you're being yelled at? Oh, okay, good. All right. Okay. Okay, so the helmet of salvation. Sometimes when you're trying to figure out what a passage means, it can be helpful to cross-reference that passage with another passage. And while Ephesians 6 is certainly the most popular passage on the armor of God, there is another shorter passage that talks about the armor of God as well. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. I want to read those verses because I think they help us understand what the helmet of salvation is here. So here's what he said. Same author, by the way, Paul wrote the book. He wrote to the church in Thessalonica and he wrote 
to the church in Ephesus. So same author, here's what he says. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, the hope of salvation is seen as a helmet. Now what you need to know is that biblical hope is completely different than the way that you or I might use the word hope. So when we use the word hope, we say things like this, well, I hope the Colts win, like it's kind of wishful thinking, right? Or I hope we have ice cream after dinner. Some of you who are really bad, you say, no, I hope we have ice cream for dinner, right? I mean, that's how we use the word hope. It's kind of wishful thinking. Well, in the Bible, hope is a certainty. It's for sure. It's for real. So when he talks about the hope of our salvation, he's saying, look, we know we're saved. We know that. So we can say things like this, we know we're adopted, we know we are secure. So because of the hope of our salvation, see, we can say things like, I am a child of God. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I have been adopted into the family of God. I am a part of the family of God, see? And notice too that in 1 Thessalonians, Paul here adds a word that isn't explicit in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on love as a breastplate. So not only is there a breastplate of righteousness, I can put on love as a breastplate as well. And I want you to remember something. Elsewhere, Paul said this. He said, love covers over a multitude of sins. That means love is righteousness, right? Because it covers over sin. And what this tells us, friends, this is so important to get, is that if I am walking in love toward other human beings... That is a form of covering. That is a form of God's protection. You say, well, how? How does that work? Well, love keeps bitterness at bay. Love resists resentment. Love keeps your heart soft toward people that hurt you over and over and over again. See, love is the foundational command from Jesus to his followers. Remember, back in John 13, when Jesus came to bring his new covenant, what did he say? A new command I give you, love one another. Now, if he had just stopped there, that wasn't a new command. I mean, you could find the command to love one another in the Old Testament. What made it new was what Jesus said next. He said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. See, this is a raise the bar kind of love. This is a a hit it out of the park kind of love. This is an entirely different kind of love that you and I are called to have for one another. 
And the thing is, that's so important to understand. If we're going to love one another as Jesus has loved us, you know what that means? That means we have to live out of his love every single day. It means we have to draw from that. It means we have to stay tethered to him because I can't give you love that I don't personally know or receive from Jesus. So I have to live out of that love. I have, to, I have to draw from the reservoir of his love so that I can be a river of his love to you. And, and there are people in your life that you need to do the same thing from. You need, to, you need to take time every day to draw from the reservoir of the love of Jesus so that that can flow to someone else like a river through you. And then finally, he says, hey, I want you to take up one more thing. I want you to take up the sword of the Spirit. And fortunately, he tells us very clearly, we don't have to guess what this is. He says, I want you to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now listen, I want you to notice a couple things. This is the only offensive weapon in this whole list. All we're called to do is stand under God's protective covering, and the only offensive weapon we've been given is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now listen, this is why we say this to you. We're, we're like a, we just beat this drum constantly. We say, look, you have to be reading God's Word. You have to be studying God's Word. You have to be meditating on God's Word. You have to be memorizing God's Word. You have to be listening to God's Word. You have to carry God's Word with you. You have to hide God's Word in your heart. I mean, we just, we say this stuff over and over and over again, and here's why. It is the only weapon that you have that you can use against your adversary, the devil. In fact, take note that when Jesus was tempted in the desert by the devil, it was just a scripture battle, right? Satan would quote scripture. He would quote it slightly out of context. And then Jesus would quote scripture back to him in exactly the right context. See, Satan, not only does he go to church, but he reads his Bible. He knows his Bible. He knows how to quote it. And so if you're not, if you don't know God's word, you're just susceptible to that attack. So when I was a little boy and I would get comic books, this goes back a while. You'd have to be probably at least 50 to remember these. When you'd ever go, when you'd ever scroll to the back of the comic book, there'd always be like a little comic there and there was like this scrawny guy sitting on the beach and this big muscular guy would come up and kick sand in the scrawny guy's face and then the scrawny guy would go away and he would get beefed up and then he goes back and kick sand in the other guy's face. I'm not sure what the point of all that was. I'm just saying this, if you don't know God's word, the devil is going to kick sand in your face all day long. He is going to take your lunch money every single day. See, we don't just say, read your Bible, you know, because we think that's a good thing to do. No, we say it because we think it's a powerful thing to do. It's a game-changer thing to do in your one and only life. Because the idea here is, look, if you don't know what God has said, if you don't know what God has promised, if you don't know what God has done, 
The devil can have his way with you. And then finally, he says, all right, after you have all that on and you're standing firm, I want you to do one more thing. And the one more thing I want you to do is pray. Here's how he says it. And pray in the Spirit at all times, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. I want you to notice here how many times he uses the word prayer or a synonym, something like petition for prayer. And here's why. Because it's prayer that activates the protective covering of God in our lives. Prayer is the means by which uh, we activate the armor of God. Prayer is the means by which we ask for God's protection. Now, I, I need to say this. For many Christians, maybe for some of us in the room, prayer is like the national anthem uh, kind of before a football game or a baseball game. In other words, it, it gets the game started, but it has absolutely no relevance to what is actually happening on the field. This happens when we pray what I would call mindless prayers or casual prayers. So let's say, for instance, we get, we get used to kind of praying for our meal. Hey, God, you know, thank, bless this food to us and us to your service. Amen. Kind of a mindless, repetitive prayer that doesn't take a lot of emotional wherewithal. Or, you know, you lay down in your bed exhausted at night. Hey, God, thanks for getting me through the day, you know. Just these kind of mindless, repetitive prayers that really aren't even connected to our daily lives. What's happening, what happened throughout the rest of our entire day, you know. And uh, I want you to notice something else, too. Um, for many Christians, I think prayer is like the spare tire that you carry around in your car. Like it's there when you absolutely have to have it, but for the most part, it goes unused and unappreciated, out of sight, out of mind. And what Paul is calling us to here is an attitude of prayer that's connected with our Heavenly Father 24-7, like at all times, in every way, and in all kinds of ways. He's using that kind of language here. And because of this, I, wanted, I think it's important, at least in this context, to define what prayer is. Now, I'm not telling you this is the exhaustive definition for prayer from the Scriptures, but I am telling you that this is the definition for prayer in this context. In this context, here's what prayer is. Inviting the power of heaven into the struggle of life. Prayer is inviting the power of heaven into the struggle of life. Because remember, the armor of God here represents God's protective covering in our daily one and only life. And we need to remember something. The reason prayer activates the armor is because prayer works in the heavenly realms where the battle is taking place. It speaks into the heart of the battle. Prayer invites heaven to intercede in the here and the now. Now, he also says, I want you to pray in the spirit at all times. 
Now, to pray in the Spirit is to pray according to the wishes of the Holy Spirit. To pray in the Spirit is to pray the same things that you think the Holy Spirit would pray for you. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans and utterances that words can't comprehend. So that the Holy Spirit intercedes with us before the Father, that he prays for us as we're praying, even when we don't know what to say. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, I want you to pray in a way that you think, I want you to pray in a way that's consistent with the way the Holy Spirit would pray for you. And I want you to notice too that he says to pray in the Spirit. Now, the NIV doesn't say it this way. It says pray in the Spirit on all occasions. That's kind of a liberty. The Greek text actually says at all times. Now, that word time here is really, really important because there are two words in the Greek, in the New Testament, that mean time. One, one of those words is chronos, and that just means time in general. This is the most often used word. It doesn't have any special meaning to it. But there's a second Greek word, the, the word kairos or kairos, and it has a very, very special meaning. And that's the word kairos is used here, not chronos. This is kairos time. Kairos time is a specific time. Kairos time is an appointed time. Kairos time is a scheduled time. Kairos time is an opportune time. Kairos time is a moment of destiny time. It's a moment to be seized and wrung dry. And kairos is the word that's used here. Why, Why kairos time? Because of the context. Because The day of evil is approaching. We're engaged in an epic spiritual battle. And so we pray in agreement with the Holy Spirit of God in those moments when you are at the very end of your rope. You know, you pray in those moments when you know the day of evil is upon you. When you know that without the Spirit's help, you're dead in the water. And then that prepares you to pray the rest of the time. Because you see God be faithful in those moments and it makes you want to pray more. It it speaks to motivation because when you see God work in those moments, you want to begin to see God work in every moment. You want to begin to see God's eyes fixed on you. So listen, I want to say a couple things and then I'm going to invite us to stand up for a final prayer. So uh, we covered spiritual warfare here in two weeks, Uh, but I want to point you, if this is an an area of interest to you, I want to point you to a great resource on Right Now Media. So Pastor Tony Evans does about a nine-week series on these same verses on spiritual warfare. So he takes nine weeks, what we only cover, in a couple of weeks, and he actually takes each of the pieces of the armor of God and talks about it for an entire message. So if you want to do a deeper dive into the armor of God, go on Right Now Media 
and uh, type in Tony Evans Armor of God. And by the way, just a moment to celebrate. Last week we had nearly a hundred men sit down in this room for a stakeout and listen to um, a movie put together by the same pastor, Tony Evans, some of his children and some men that Tony Evans has poured into over the years. We had an incredible time and I just thought it was really cool that we had almost a hundred men for that event. Isn't that awesome? I think so too. That's praiseworthy. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite everyone in the room to stand up for just a moment. Now, if you're standing up, um, okay, so maybe you're here today, and life is a zippity-doo-dah moment for you right now. I mean, it's, it's all good. You're not aware of any warfare. You're not stressed. There's no tension. There's nothing to worry about. If that's you, you are free to sit down in this moment because you don't need this prayer, okay? That's what I thought. For all of us that are standing, you know, we know, right? Okay, the day of evil is a real thing, and I need to be able to stand in that. And so what I want to do is I just want to pray for you in this moment. So I want to invite everybody to just bow your heads. So Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would give them a supernatural wisdom and insight into the accusations of the enemy. I pray that they would, you would give them a supernatural ability to take those thoughts captive, to sift the lies of, the, of our enemy by the truth of your word. I pray that um, as we put on the full armor of God, Lord Jesus, that we would know your protection and your covering. I pray for men and women here today who may be overwhelmed, maybe may be at, literally at the very end of their rope. Heavenly Father, would you speak a hopeful word over them? Would you remind them that you have their back in the same way that a mama bear watches out for her cubs? You have your eyes fixed on us. Your affections are for us, and you are the God of all comfort. Would you comfort those in our church family today that need that comfort? Would you remind them that they don't stand alone in the heat of the battle, that you are with them and for them, and that you have told them that you will never leave and that you will never forsake them? Would you be the God of all comfort for those that need that? Would you give strength to those that are weak? Would you give rest to those that are tired? Would you speak to us by the power of your spirit that lives and moves and breathes within each of us? And by the power of that Holy Spirit, would you wrap your arms of love around your people in this very moment and give them not just an intellectual knowledge of your love, but a supernatural knowledge of your love. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when the day of evil comes, that all any of us have to do is stand. And God, we thank you as well that it's your armor, not ours. It's not something we have to conjure up. It's just something we have to trust you for as we stand up under your covering and your protection. And so we give you thanks together.
We give you praise together. And we do that in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you guys for worshiping with us today. God bless you. Have an amazing day.